Good morning, my lovely ladies. Thank you for braving the bitter cold outside to make it here. At least, praise God, this, today's supposed to be warmer than the last couple days, so that'll be lovely. Unless you like the cold, and then I'm very sorry. So, <laughs> but this morning, um, I'm going to dive right in, but let's just go ahead and pray, and then we will um, talk. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for these dear ladies who faithfully come each week. I pray that you would be with us as we talk through humility, that you would sow this needed character into our lives, that we would be willing to listen carefully and learn from your word and apply these things throughout each different situation that you have brought into our lives so that we can come forth as gold. We thank you for your faithfulness and the way that you love us and the way that you sustain us. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. All right. So this morning, I actually want you, hopefully you have your notes, flip it over. We're going to do a little exercise this morning, kind of taking from what we learned last week about our thoughts, and then also thinking through this week, which is a humble heart. So go ahead and number one to seven, and what I'm going to do is I am going to read an article to you off the internet, the ceaseless vast ocean of information, but... I am going to tell you ahead of time, I'm so nice, I'm going to give you this little cheat sheet. What I'm about to read to you is theologically wrong. What I want you to tell me, we're going to just pretend I'm a, I'm a friend of yours, we're out to coffee, I start spewing this, and you're going to go, whoa, Rach, the Bible says, okay, so as I'm reading, there's seven different points I was going to like read it all through and then go back and I'd slowly go through it. And honestly, there's so much more we need to focus on that we're just going to do it together point by point. So I'm going to read it. As I'm reading, if you're like, wait a minute, Rach, but the Bible says this, write down the phrase from the verse, the reference of the verse down on your paper on that number, okay? So it's kind of like a fun, okay, correct my thoughts for me, all right? Okay, so the title, I got it from a website called Health Shots, Your Daily Dose of Wellness. That sounds good. We want to be healthy women, right? So it's, it's labeled under emotional health. And the title of the article is Come, Fall in Love with Yourself by Taking These Seven Steps to Unconditional Self-Love. And the, the authoress says, ladies, it's time to fall in love with yourself completely and unconditionally. Here's how you can get started on self-love. And she encourages, be proud of what you do. Okay? So, number one, are we ready? I'm going to read to you what number one is as I'm reading it. I can't give you a lot of time because we got good stuff to get to. But as I'm reading it, go ahead and write down, or if you just want to identify, wrong thought, wrong thought, wrong thought, you can do it that way too. Number one, do away with the self-criticism. She says, we often say, I don't like how I look. I shouldn't have eaten so much. 
I look horrible in that dress. Ladies, when, we are, when are we ever going to stop criticizing ourselves and start accepting ourselves the way we are? The first step towards unconditional self-love is to do away with the self-hate. So replace the negative self-talk with positive affirmations like, I love those curves. That ice cream was delicious, and I deserved that treat. But I will surely exercise and burn it off tomorrow. Better yet, start the day by looking at yourself in the mirror and complimenting yourself. You catching anything? And sometimes it can be subtle. Okay, so I have down, that's not self-criticism, that's called discontentment. We should be content with the body God has given us. All our praise should be for God and what he has done for me. So we should say things like, Lord, you have knit me together, and I praise you for the life and body you have given me to serve you. Help me to rejoice in the blessings you have given, like yummy ice cream, while helping me to exercise my self-control because that will reflect your perfect character. So maybe a scripture you would have jotted down was Psalm 139 or others on self-control. Okay, let's go on to number two. Take care of your body. Exercising, she says, and healthy, eating healthy won't just give you a fit body. It can even give you a sound mind. Y'all know how exercise promotes the release of the endorphins, which is happy hormones, in your body and decreases cortisol, the stress hormone, right? Well, use this knowledge to your advantage and exercise regularly to maintain a happy state of mind, which will make you feel good about yourself, even in the worst of situations, trust us. As for eating well, a balanced meal can ensure a healthy balance of nutrition and hormones in your body, avoiding mood swings or crankiness, further keeping your good mood through the day. Did you catch anything there? She was closer to being right on this one. So we absolutely agree that we should take care of the body that God has given us. And God is so kind to give us endorphins that are released when we exercise or when we work hard. But their end goal is personal happiness and feeling good about yourself. Our end goal should be personal holiness and bringing glory to God. We do our work heartily as unto the Lord and follow the words of 1 Timothy 4.8. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Okay, charging right ahead. Here's number three. She says, counter your fear. If you do not feel confident in a certain dress, stand in front of the mirror, stare into your eyes, and tell yourself that you are going to rock it. And once you do, step out wearing it. Your fears will vanish, and you'll be proud of yourself for overcoming your fear and reluctance. The same mirror theory can work to counter any mental or emotional obstacle that you think you cannot overcome. 
have that little pep talk and tell yourself that you can do it and try. Even if you fail, you'd have more respect for yourself for at least trying something new and bold, right? Okay, and just so you know, there's more than one right answer. Just because you wrote a different scripture than what I have doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means you're doing a great job of thinking through scripture. But I have down again, this is a wrong solution to the problem of fear. We do not rely on ourselves when we are afraid. And no amount of positive self-talk is going to take cure our heart of sinful fear. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 3.7 says, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So don't think you have it within you. So if I just pep talk myself enough, then I can do the right thing. No, fear the Lord instead. Number four, forgive yourself. Mm. Ladies, here's a reminder for y'all, she says. We are all human beings completely capable of making mistakes and doing some very selfish things. You're not alone in this. But you can definitely feel like you are if you continue to punish yourself for your humanly misgivings and are always too harsh on yourself. You're God's creation too and deserve the same gentleness and kindness that you offer to others. So first, forgive yourself for whatever wrong you think you've done and be gentle when dealing or talking to yourself, okay? What's wrong there, y'all? First of all, never, ever, ever will you find in scripture the idea to forgive yourself. Also, she does not call sin a sin. She insists on calling it mistakes and humanly misgivings. While temptations are common to man, so yeah, we're not alone in it, we are to use our way of escape that God provides according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. We have been given scripture in our battle against sin according to Psalm 119.11 and God's forgiveness is what we need when we sin, not our own forgiveness, according to 1 John 1, 9. So if you have someone who is saying, oh, I just have a really hard time forgiving myself, there are some scriptures to take them to of, I think you've got this a little bit backwards. You actually need to seek God's forgiveness and then trust that he is just and faithful to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now what are we basing our thoughts on? God's character. Much better place. All right, number five. Surround yourself with positive people. Pleasing people has got to stop. She's starting out good. If you want to love yourself, no matter what. Choose your friends wisely and surround yourself only with those people who motivate you, make you feel happy and light, and have a positive influence on you. Distance yourself from people who demand too much of your time and energy only to offer toxicity and thanklessness in return. Where did she go wrong there? She started off so good. 
So I have. Pleasing people has definitely got to stop. Specifically and especially stop pleasing yourself all the time. That is the most toxic activity of all. It poisons your soul and your thinking of others. We are are to be wise in our relationships with each other, but are called to joyfully lay down our life in service to others in the body and share the gospel with those who are not part of the church, just like our Savior, who gave his life for vile sinners like me. Our ultimate goal is to please God in all things, even difficult relationships. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Okay, moving along. Number six, indulge in activities that spark joy. You might be thinking, okay, here we go. Joy, that's a fruit of the spirit. She's getting better. She says, follow your passion. Take it up as a hobby or your profession. Or simply stick to an activity that you really enjoy doing. Art, craft, swimming, dancing, reading. Do whatever makes you happier to feel more fulfilled and more in love with yourself. Once again, the end goal is our own happiness. The true fulfillment and contentment is only going to come through peace with God because of Christ's sacrifice. Ecclesiastes makes a comment on this type of thought pattern. Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? But Psalm 1611 gives us a very different view. It's talking of the Lord. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So quite a different thought pattern. All right, number seven, stand up for yourself. She says, it's not okay for someone to ill-treat you and walk away freely. You've got to set your standards high and make sure you maintain them by taking a stand for yourself every time anyone tries to undermine, criticize, or ill-treat you. All this for the sake of your self-esteem. So what would you tell a friend who says, I just got to stand up for myself. I can't let them walk all over me. My first words were, wow, where to start? She is encouraging vengeance when others sin against you. We are to follow Christ's example, forgiving when sinned against. Ephesians 4.32 immediately pops to mind, as well as Romans 12.21 Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Or 1 Peter 2, 21 and 23. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. And while being reviled, 
he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. What a difference. There's no staunch, oh, I just got to stand up for myself. It's no. My Savior had the path of suffering, had people reviling, insulting him, and he definitely never, ever one time deserved it, never one time sinned, and yet people reviled him. And yet he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, you might be thinking, Rach, why, why spend time on this little exercise? Because those thought patterns centered on self. And this is what our world is screaming to us that we should be doing and we should be thinking. It's natural to those who are living in the flesh. They look at us as though we've grown a third eyeball if we are humble and treat each other as we're called to do. Now, they don't like fear, negative thoughts, or feeling bad. But instead of looking how they should humbly repent from their sin and turn to Christ and his word for solutions, they search inside of themselves for a solution to their problems. They think, oh, if I just try a little bit harder, I can accomplish my goals. <clears throat> then, then they'll feel good about themselves. And of course, that just feeds their pride. The world does not even bother to put a shiny veneer over it anymore. Pride is a great thing now, something you should be proud of. And oftentimes they call it self-love and consider it a necessary and a good thing. If you have been or still are influenced by these type of self-centered thought patterns, Scripture has a drastically different point of view for us to renew our minds with. We're going to ask four different questions about humility today. We're going to ask who, why, where, and what. Our passage is going to help us with who needs humility, why do we need humility, where should we humble ourselves, and what is the result of humbling ourselves? So let's go ahead and open up in our scripture to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5. Now, I am going to start in the middle of the verse. The verse starts out, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, but since we have a dreadful lack of young men or elders sitting in this room, I think we can go ahead and stop, start at the mid of the verse. So, and we're okay with that, by the way. Okay, so let's look at the second half of verse 5. It starts, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for... God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Ladies, isn't that quite the drastic change in thought pattern when it comes to thinking about ourselves? And thinking about that article. 
So let's start on our outline with the, our first question, who? So number one, who needs humility? And of course, in five, we see Peter says, and all of you clothe yourselves. Now, if you read in the context, we know that he's talking to people in the church. So these are all believers, and he is telling the believers, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Now, I've been super excited all week to share with you what that word clothe means. Because we think, okay, Rach, clothe, like I put on my clothes. And absolutely correct means to fasten or to gird on oneself. But this is the only time in scripture this word in particular is used because the root Greek word was the white scarf or apron of slaves, which was fastened to the girdle of the vest and distinguished slaves from freemen. Hence, in 1 Peter 5, 5, he's saying, gird yourselves or put on, gird yourselves with humility as your servile garb. By putting on you humility, you show your subjection to one another. So it's, we're supposed to have the mindset, we put on the mindset of being a servant to one another. Brilliant. Almost a, I'm putting my apron on because I need to be humble and thoughtful towards you. And you're supposed to be doing the same thing, putting that apron on. I'm a servant of Christ. So I'm going to have humility towards each other. You wonder if the experience in John 13 was in the forefront of Peter's mind when he wrote this passage. Listen to John 13, 3 through 7. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God, was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. So our passage today seems to show that Peter is understanding and applying what Christ was trying to teach his disciples in that moment of humbly washing their feet as a servant. So um, Matthew Henry said, clothing was the original badge of man's sin and shame. Pride caused the need of man's clothing, and pride still reigns in dress. The Christian, therefore, clothes himself in humility. God provides him with the robe of Christ's righteousness in order to receive which man must be stripped of pride. Do you hear what he's saying there? God provides this, the robe of Christ's righteousness, but before we can receive it, we must be stripped of pride. So in our passage, who needs to put on this garment of humility? A, 
all in the body of Christ. And as I'm sure you're thinking, all does indeed mean all. So it says, all of you clothe yourselves with humility. Okay, you might be thinking, it makes sense that everyone needs humility, but what does being clothed in humility look like, especially in the church? Obviously, society around us does not have a correct viewpoint on it. So what, is, what does that look like fleshed out? Peter describes it in the preceding chapter. So go ahead and turn to 1 Peter 4, and we're going to read verses 8 through 10. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. He says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sin. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So B, all need to actively put humility on. So that phrase there, with humility toward one another, toward one another means this is reciprocal. It's mutually given and received. So, no self-love allowed here. We are actively to be seeking to serve each other. We are to give and gratefully receive service from each other according to the gifts that the Holy Spirit gave us at the point of our redemption. So I have to ask you, are you exercising those gifts? Do you actively seek to serve others at GC? See, either with encouragement, hospitality, by praying for each other, maybe preparing a meal for those having babies or are sick or lost a loved one. Do you have willing hands to help when there are events, either to decorate or prepare food or welcome visitors? Are you willing to serve the young moms by serving in the nursery so that they can hear the word of God without distraction? Could you maybe teach a Sunday school, a children's Sunday school class, and share with them the love of Christ and the beauty of the gospel? Or could you get involved with a small group in order to know other families better and fulfill the needs that come up through that? Could you work in the youth group and mentor some gals who need an older woman to show them how to follow Christ in this crazy world they're growing up in? We have much, much work to do, ladies. And we as women have a lot to offer. Are we serving one, one another and having this humility to give and receive that service? So we've answered who needs humility. All in God's church need to actively put on humility. But now we need to answer the question number two. Why do we need humility? Why do we need humility? Look down at verse 5. So we're to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And there Peter is quoting Proverbs 3. But that word for there can also be translated because, since. So it, it, it expresses a reason. This is what's called a 
purpose clause. He's telling you why he's telling you to be clothed with humility. Because, A, God is opposed to the proud. Opposed to the proud. Now, that word opposed there means to baffle or to disappoint. He is turning his face against you. Joel Beakey, in his book, says pride is complex. Jonathan Edwards said that it takes many forms and shapes and encompasses the heart like the layers of an onion. When you pull off one layer, there's another underneath. He groans. So this is Jonathan Edwards groaning. He groaned about the bottomless, infinite depths of pride left in his own heart 20 years after his conversion. And do we not cry out with him, oh, wretched woman that I am. You feel like you pull it out in one place and it's like that runner grass that you see it at the side of your sidewalk and you're like, oh, yeah, I need to get to that. Mm -hmm. And then you pull it and you think you got it, but you didn't get all the roots. So then it and pops up somewhere else and then it and pops somewhere else and you're like, duh. Pride is just like that, so deceitful. You think it's gone, and it just pops up somewhere else. So we need to renew our minds. If God is saying he is opposed to the proud, I'm going to read for you just a selection of verses. I'm not going to read the references just because I want the flow to come through, but I'm just going to read for you verses I found, and I, I stuck to both Psalms and Proverbs only. There's Isaiah, Jeremiah, the minor prophets all have scriptures as well. But this is what God says about pride. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, is sin. Proud Haughty scoffer are his names who acts with insolent pride. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I hate. And the one we are all familiar with, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. So God is against those who are proud, but B, God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. That phrase there, gives grace, means the aid of divine grace, literally to run to or to run to support, to help or relieve when in difficulty, want or distress, to assist and deliver from suffering. What a great way to think about that. The Lord <laughs> runs to give us aid. He gives grace to the humble. So let's do the same thing again. Let's just let the Lord speak for himself. I'm going to read another couple passages. 
The Lord says, but with the humble is wisdom, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. Oh, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. He leads the humble in justice, and he teaches the humble his way. But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth. So we've answered who needs humility and why that humility is needed. Now we need to answer number three. Where should we be humble? Where should we be humble? Now you might think that's a typo and it should say, when should we be humble? But no, no. Look at where we are to humble ourselves, A, on your outlines, under the mighty hand of God. Under the mighty hand of God. Look down at verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So ladies, as we're thinking about humility, as we're thinking about situations in our lives, we need to remember that our sovereign God has brought every circumstance and every difficult person into our lives. We cannot avoid the hand of God. Remember what we learned way back when we were talking about Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? Even though sometimes our rebellious hearts do utter those words. Lord, what are you doing? Why is this happening? What is going on? Now, a couple of verses down from our passage here, Peter is encouraging his readers who, at the time of receiving that letter, they're going under severe persecution for following Christ. Look down at 1 Peter 5.10. He tries to encourage them by saying, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So as we're moving forward, yes, we have difficulties in our life. Yes, we have difficult people. And it can get easy to puff up. I don't want to walk through this. I don't want to deal with that person. This is a good verse to run to. Also, the Colossians 3, 1 through 4 that we looked at last week. But as we're thinking these through, I, yes, after I've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace. Okay, what did that grace mean? Divine help. He is running to my aid. Okay, God is running to my aid. He's called me for his eternal glory in Christ. We're hidden with Christ will himself. Okay, God's the one that's going to perfect me. He's going to (laughs) confirm me, strengthen me, and establish me. Okay, that's what it means to be under his mighty hand. 
So even under persecution, we are to be patient and wait, trusting that God will accomplish his work in us and through us as we deal with hard circumstances and people. And you might be thinking, well, Rach, could you give me some examples? I thought you'd never ask. And because I love being nerdy and I love um, when everything starts with the same letter, I made them all S's so you can remember better. So B, areas of life that we need to be humble. Areas of life that we need to be humble under the mighty hand of God. Are you guys ready? Okay. First one's hard, but we can do this. We're sisters. We're sticking together. And a lot of these ladies, I'm not thinking about you. I was preaching at myself all week. Number one is submission. (laughs) Submission. So this means letting our husbands or our elders, as the case may be, be our authority in proper ways. So this last Sunday, ladies, as you were hearing Chris start talking about headship, did you hold your breath and start feel your temperature rising? Or most of us, we mentally assent to submission. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's great. It's fine. But when the rubber meets the road and you think your husband is wrong, your neck suddenly becomes made of steel. You can't be reasoned with. You dig in your heels, and you might be thinking, but Rach, you you don't understand. You don't know my husband. He can be so foolish sometimes, and I would like to gently remind you who gave you that husband, who made him the head of your home. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God who gave you the husband you needed and be willing to follow your husband's lead trusting that the Lord will provide what you need when you need it. Now, the the only exception is if your husband is asking you to sin. But even if that's the case, then Galatians 6.1 comes into play. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So in the days to come, as Chris is going through the next few verses on headship, embrace your husband's leadership as what it is, a good and right gift from God. Let's determine together that we will listen carefully for the purpose of repenting of bad, stubborn attitudes and apply what the Lord is teaching us in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Also, just a thought, what if we started praying for our husbands? What if we started praying for our husbands the equal amount of time that we spend fussing at them. That one got me. All right, so that's submission. Number two, speech. We need to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in our speech. Now, a lot of these 
thoughts, I need to give Craig Hansen credit where credit is due. Um, he's been teaching on communication in our Sunday school um, class and has just been nailing it. I'm furiously writing as he's talking. But as we think through humility in our speech, we need to think about, do I interrupt people a lot? Just because I want to get out what I have to say. Or maybe I don't interrupt people, but really on the inside, I'm formulating what I want to say instead of intently listening to what they have to tell me. It's more important to me that I'm, I'm thinking about what I want to say, not important to soak in what they have to tell me. I get internally impatient, waiting so I can get to my next great point. Are you so in a hurry to say what you want to say that you don't wait for who you are talking to to finish? I mean, sometimes we're like, but Rach, I'm afraid I'll, I'll forget what I'm going to say. That happens more and more to me. Or they, they're taking so long to say what they have to say. <laughs> Does what you want to say erupt out of your mouth before the other person's even done? Proverbs 18.13 says, He who gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. <laughs> oh, that one hurt. But it's so true. So how do we put humility on in our speech? Peter gives us some clues in chapter 3. You can flip to it real quick if you want to. 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9. To sum it up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So if we're going to be harmonious, are we going to be diving in and interrupting what they want to say? Or if we're being tender-hearted, humble in our spirit, or even if the person is insulting us, we're not trading that insult for an insult, but giving a blessing instead. So we've got our submission. We've got our speech. Number three, suspicious thinking. Suspicious thinking. Now, y'all, this is the ugly cousin of assumptions that we were talking about last week. So you might be saying, okay, Rach, what do, you, what do you mean by suspicious thinking? Now, I'm about to give you an example. But now, this one is not personally applicable to me because my daughters have great in-laws, okay? So I don't want to read this and you go, oh, I see what you're doing there. So, <laughs> so praise God, I can use this example because it's so not applicable in my situation necessarily, but I felt like it would be something that maybe would make it clear. And ladies, the holidays are coming. Suspicious thinking. So an example, you know your daughter talked to her in-laws yesterday. You begin to wonder if they made their holiday plans with them without talking to you first, making sure you get the day you want to celebrate. 
Just like assuming you need to remind yourself that only God knows the thoughts and intentions of others. We should not be suspicious of others' motives. So suspicion is an automatic negative like, oh, she talked to them. Oh, I just bet you they're making their plans without talking to me first. Automatic negative. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says, Therefore, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and make manifest the motives of the heart. So it is not to us to assume or be suspicious, automatically negative, about the motives of somebody else's heart. And even her talking to her in-laws and making plans, is that a sin? No. Can we react sinfully? Yes. So a lot of times, number three will bleed right into number four, self-pity. Self-pity. So self-pity can often be bred by that suspicious thinking. So we start thinking about your suspicions about your daughter talking to the in-laws. Your daughter always goes along with what her husband's family wants to do. You just know they're going to end up spending more time with them than you for the holidays. <sighs> they always did like them better, even though you do so much for them. Why can't anyone appreciate all that you do for everyone else? Ladies, do we not fall into this? That suspicious thinking. Number one, you don't even know it's true yet. You just know that she talked to her in-laws. So you're assuming but then you're, it's breeding suspicion, and that suspicion is pushing you boop, right into that self-pity. So, a couple of reasons why I feel sorry for myself. Number one, I didn't get what I wanted. Or you can shorten it to, I deserve this. I deserve to have the day that I want to celebrate with my family. I mean, I burst them and everything. I should get the day I want. Or number two, I got what I didn't want. I don't deserve this. So a lot of times it's either our thought patterns are, I deserve this. We know better than to say it out loud, but if you poke at that heart, man, it's in there somewhere. I deserve this or I don't deserve this. Ladies, God is opposed to the proud Anytime we search our hearts and realize that we think we deserve better, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We don't ever get what we deserve, which is eternity in hell immediately. Be thankful for God's grace to you. And while you're busy being thankful, be thankful that your daughter has in-laws that she gets along with and that they get to spend time together. That's called rejoicing with those who rejoice. And be very grateful for whatever time you get to have with them. Who do you think your daughter would rather spend time with? A mom that guilt trips her for, because she didn't get what the mom wanted? Or a mom who genuinely expresses gratitude every time she gets to see her? Or, more importantly, which one is more honoring to the Lord? Now, maybe that's not exactly your situation, but is that not situations we find ourselves in? So be so very careful of self-pity. I, I uh, 
call self-pity the ugly underbelly of pride because it's not self-elevating. Oftentimes, it's putting ourselves down. But who is it still all wrapped around? Me. Woe is me. I can never get it right. No one ever loves me. Me, 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 me. We've got to fight it, ladies. So it doesn't feel prideful, but it is prideful. All right, number five. So that was self-pity. Number five, social anxiety. Social anxiety. Now, ladies, this one is becoming a more and more common complaint that I'm hearing. And oftentimes when you talk to people that think and talk about it, they talk about it as though they're just stuck. They talk about it like it's a disease. They believe that oftentimes mm, nobody else understands what I'm walking through. I just, I can't socialize normally. Now, I am not saying it's not a thing. I am not saying it's not extremely difficult. And definitely with, with situations in our society, it's more and more on a rise. But we need to be very, very careful that you declaring that your feelings trump the commands of Scripture is automatically pride. So you have to be very careful about this. Being around people is not a tri trial, though it may feel like it internally. You need to humble yourself under the hand of God, knowing that he has put you in the social surroundings that you are in. You have to start it on a thought level. You have to change your thinking on it. You need to repent of the selfish pride or fear that underlies this anxiety. And then determine in your mind to encourage every person you are able to. Now, I know this is hard, so I'm not saying this uncompassionately. Um, it used to be that people would more talk about this of, oh, being in a large group makes me nervous, or I just, I don't like being around large groups of people or small groups of people, or, you know, my heart starts beating super, super fast because I don't know what to say. I don't know how to carry a conversation. Okay. So maybe start small. So you attack the, the fear that underlies this, this anxiety, then determine I'm going to encourage someone. You need to get your eyes off of how you are feeling and start having the joy of obeying, trusting that God will be with you. So maybe some of us just need to start small. Say hi to at least two people you wouldn't normally. Then strive to say something kind to someone the next time. Look around you and seek out the people that are standing on the fringe and try to engage them in a conversation. It may not go awesome the first couple times you try. But how are you going to obey the scriptures we just read of loving one another fervently and being hospitable if you don't force yourself to build conversational skills or if you're always waiting for others to come and talk to you? With all that Christ suffered in your place, can you not be uncomfortable for a little bit in order to obey his commands out of love for him? 
So his commands say, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together. His command says that we are to use our gifts to serve each other. Oftentimes that means being in a social setting and it means getting our eyes off of self and onto others. So just some things to think about as we're thinking about putting on humility. That is not an all-compassing list, but hopefully that'll get your creative juices flowing as you apply this passage to yourself. See on your outlines. Scripture also tells us God exalts at the proper time. God exalts at the proper time. Look down back at our passage, 1 Peter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So as we're thinking through the proper time, oftentimes that's a phrase that is pointing forward to the coming of Christ. When we are glorified, we will be exalted because we are with Christ. So we will be exalted with him in glory, just like our Colossians 3 passage said last week. And another passage, Psalm 89, 13 through 16, says, You have a strong arm. Your hand is mighty. Your right hand is exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. Oh, Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. In your name, they rejoice all the day. And by your righteousness, they are exalted. So through God's righteousness, we are exalted. And at the proper time, our problem is we want that proper time to be right now. We don't want to keep on walking through what we're walking through or thinking through. And sometimes it's even the weariness of our own brain, our own thoughts, our own inside of us, that flesh that just clings to us like a dead corpse. Even so, Lord, come quickly, right? But yet, it's not the proper time. So we need to trust him about that proper time. It's so easy to be tempted to be impatient, waiting for that day where there's no more sin and no more injustice. We want relief right now. But that's not trusting God's timing. So we've answered who needs humility, why we need humility, where we should humble ourselves, and now, the moment you've all been waiting for, we have finally got to number four. What is the result of humbling ourselves? What is the result of humbling ourselves? Look down at verse number seven, the most familiar verse of this whole passage. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So A, casting our anxiety. Casting our anxiety. Ladies, you cannot, cannot, may I say again, cannot go to verse 7 without obeying verse 6. You can't. What did verse 7 ever do to us that we think we can rip it right out from its context? Because often we do. We want to jump right to that. Woo! Get rid of that anxiety. Yes! We're 
going to politely ignore the whole humble under God's mighty hand part. We're going to go straight for that. We can't do it. I would argue this is probably one of the most ripped out of context verse there is in scripture. But you can't have one without the other, ladies. It doesn't work. We cannot forget context just because we like this part of the verse. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God before you can do any casting. So this part of the verse reminds us of Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Now, when we're thinking about the word casting, oftentimes in our modern society, we think of casting when we go fishing. So the tossing out, reeling in, but that's not what's being communicated by the Greek here. The same Greek word is used in Luke 19.35 when the disciples were getting the colt for Christ, preparing for his triumphal entry. It says, they brought it, the colt, to Jesus and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. That word through there is the same exact Greek word as the casting in our passage. So whereas casting for fish gives us the mental picture of throwing something away from you just to reel it back in, this casting is like throwing a coat onto the back of the donkey. It is more metaphorical in First Peter, but it's to signify the full weight of it being on God for him to carry when we are not to take it back. So we are throwing it the full weight on him and we're letting go. So that word anxiety there means a care, to be drawn in different directions, a distraction. Our good friend Noah Webster says this is an uneasiness of mind occasioned by the fear of evil or the desire of good. So I say being all in a tizzy or being fretful. So it's whatever causes your mind to be uneasy. And I do think that drawn in different directions, does that not what our mind is like when we're dealing with anxiety? We just don't even know what to look at first. And yet we are to cast it. So B, let's look at the basis of our casting. The basis of our casting, look back down at verse number seven, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So the casting is not about you or me. It's because he cares for us. This should cause us to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Ladies, God cares for you in this moment, in the difficulties that you're going to have to walk through getting people together for the holidays, trying to figure out the holidays. What am I going to do? What am I not going to do? When I'm interacting with people at church, 
and they say something that's unkind or unthoughtful. When I'm trying to think through, how am I going to serve best at church? I don't even know where to start. I don't even know where to go. He cares for you. When you have a situation that you truly are, are just befuddled, you don't know what to do with it, we can cast it on the Lord because he cares for you. Now, this isn't a inward introspection of, I just need to try harder. I just need to believe in myself a little bit more. I just need to learn more. Then I can do it. No. We throw it on him and allow him to carry it, trusting that he will exalt us at the proper time knowing that he knows best because he knows the beginning from the end and we do not. So we trust him in all our ways. So I want to close with a quote from our friend Charles Spurgeon. He has a poignant question for us. He said, Why do you continue to stagger beneath a weight your father would not even feel? What may seem to be a crushing burden to you would not amount to the weight of a speck of dust to him. O oh, child of suffering, be patient. Your sovereign God has not passed over or forgotten you. He who feeds the sparrows will also provide everything you need. Don't give up in despair. Hope on. Hope forever. Use the weapons of faith against the seas of trouble and ultimately your foes will be defeated and your distress will come to an end. There is one who cares for you. His eye is fixed upon you. His heart beats with pity for your suffering and his omnipotent hand will not fail to provide you help. Even the darkest storm cloud will be scattered into showers of mercy and the darkest night will give way to the morning sun. If you are a member of his family, he will bind your wounds and heal your broken heart. Never doubt his grace because of the troubles in your life, but believe he loves you just as much during the seasons of trouble as in times of happiness. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you do care for us. I pray that we would take these truths, that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, knowing that you are faithful, knowing that you are good, knowing that our deepest sorrows, our heaviest burdens are but light to you. I pray that we would be obedient women, that we would cast our anxiety on you, knowing that you care for us and that each situation that these dear ladies are walking through is woven by your hand in order for us to have a deeper dependence on you, in order for us to trust you more fully, in order to love you more. Lord, I pray that you would bring us forth as gold. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Thank you, ladies. You're dismissed to your groups.